The Doctrine of Discovery is the current system of laws and policies that justify the removal of land from indigenous peoples. These laws are rooted in church doctrines that originated in the 15th century. Together, we will uncover this deep structure of colonization that systematically deprives indigenous peoples of human rights. I'm Sherry Hostetler, and I help start a coalition of Anabaptist people of faith that seek to dismantle the doctrine of discovery. I'm also a Mennonite pastor in San Francisco. I'm Sarah Augustine, and I also help to start this coalition. As an activist and scholar, I am the descendant of the Tewa people and a displaced person. This is the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery podcast. What you are about to hear is hard to hear. Although we won't go into detail, we are going to be talking about physical and sexual abuse, as well as other acts of violence. So, hi, Sarah. Hi, good morning. Good morning. So, I wanted to begin this morning uh, and this podcast about, you know, the doctrine of discovery is such a big abstract concept. You know, every time I mention it to, you know, mostly white people, uh, their eyes kind of glaze over because it just seems like ancient history. But the doctrine of discovery, it's not abstract. It's not in the past. It's very real. It's very present. It lives in people's bodies and their psyches in very real ways. And it lives in our structures and our institutions in very real ways. And can you talk a bit about just the reality of the doctrine of discovery as you see it in your life and the lives of people around you that you know? I think one of the ways it's helpful to to think about what the doctrine of discovery is and the way that it continues to persist in our society is to think about the way people experience life, daily life in a different way when your history has been framed by the doctrine of discovery. So that's kind of a big tangled mess. Let me just talk about, to begin with, one thing that I've noticed in my interaction with other Native people is a sense of of shame. And I think I want to start there because I think for me, there's been a large experience of shame throughout my life that I internalized and of course didn't know had anything to do with a historical basis, I gradually started to discover that. You know, first of all, as a child understanding, hey, my experience of the world in the United States is not the same as somebody's life experience who's who's in the dominant culture. I have a completely different experience of the world. And that experience, my experience, has been really tinged with shame. And so, you know, I didn't sort of come into this conversation knowing that. So let me give you an example. When I taught at Heritage University, which is a a small university on the Yakima Reservation, which is actually the, uh, the place where I live, the homeland of the Yakima Nation, I noticed that students I interacted with there who were Native also sort of had the same experience, sure, but I mean, just sort of countenance. Hmm related to shame. And that, that was really uh, disturbing for me. So I'll give you an example. There's a young woman. Her name is Max. She's extremely bright, articulate, really somebody when she would participate in class discussion, she would be 
just always the one to not only ask a challenging question, but engage other students in discussions, non-threatening, uh, but very incisive in the way she she would talk about issues. You know, I'm a sociologist. I taught sociology at Heritage University. And so often we're talking about issues related to, to the day, what's going on in our society. And when we would talk about Native American issues, I noticed that she just kind of would stop talking. And one day after class, I just asked her about that and said, hey, I notice every time, you know, we talk about issues related to Native America, you don't really have much to say. And I'm just wondering what, what's up with that? And, you know, she kind of looked away and, and said, you know, I, I don't really know anything about that stuff. I don't know how to keep traditional. I was like, huh, well, yeah, tell me more about that. Because, you know, we live here on the homeland of the bands and tribes of the Yakama Nation. And she said, yeah, I'm enrolled, but I don't, I don't really know anything about that. And she basically said, you know, I don't know really how to do Indian stuff. And so I said, okay, um, but you are native woman and you know what, what that's like. And she's like, yeah, I don't want to, I don't really feel comfortable talking about that. So I was like, okay, I just let it go. But then, you know, other students that I got close to over time, people I'd have, in class over a couple years of their undergraduate career, I just noticed this trend that there's really just this sort of like feeling of not being able to speak authoritatively about their own experience. You know, I found that to be really shocking. And the thing that I think was most shocking to me was that that same countenance was a countenance that I myself experienced and sort of express myself in the world with that countenance, this sense of shame. I mean, I have to, I guess, Sherry, I would have to explore that because I'm not ashamed of being Native, obviously. I mean, I spend a lot of time writing and thinking about what that's like. It, it is a shame that I heard expressed uh, with, with several students of not feeling like I'm the real thing. I remember one student telling me, hey, you know, I don't have a grandmother. I didn't learn the old stories or I don't I don't know that spirituality. You know, my mom grew up in foster care, just this sense of displacement. And interacting and forming a relationship with students caused me to start really thinking about my own sense of shame. So this shame is kind of connected to being an outsider within your own heritage. As Max said, I think, I don't know how to do Indian stuff. That's where the shame comes from. <laughs> well, yeah. And so, I mean, I guess if I were to put a magnifying glass over that, I would say being Native is one of the only ethnic identities in the United States that's defined by the federal government mm. specifically, right? There are criteria for being a Native American and whether you are registered or not, whether you are enrolled or not, has a great deal of cultural significance that goes with that. And so not being enrolled or even being enrolled in, and not having a sort of a strong grounding or, or a story of what that means causes this sort of feeling of I'm not the real thing. You know, I've also ex heard expressed many times a fear of being a pretender. And so, you know, as I've lectured around the country on the doctrine of discovery, specifically within the context of the church, I've had people come up to me after I've preached or after I've given a lecture to say, hey, you know, I mean, sort of in a whispered way, yeah, I have Native American ancestry, um, but I don't know anything about it. 
you know, hearing these stories from people that I've interacted with sort of caused me to say, hey, yeah, you know, this is a diaspora. This is a diaspora of people who have been scattered and divided from their own land and language and culture. That, I think, has caused me to sort of dig down and say, hey, you know, what are the institutional engines that have caused this to be the way that it is. Because we're talking about, you know, the doctrine of discovery being real and current is about more than a feeling or an experience, uh, the way I might feel inside. That's an expression of something deeper, which is my ability to have access to the institutions in the United States that are going to enable me to have health, long life, prosperity, all of these things are at a distance uh, in my experience, in my personal experience, because of this historical legacy that has divided me from land and identity and the sort of sense of shame or feeling that in some way that's my fault is, is just kind of the tip of the iceberg or the indicator of that larger sense of displacement. So... I wonder, would you be willing to talk a little bit more about your own experience growing up and that shame that you carried with you? Would you feel comfortable sharing more of that? Um, you know, at this stage of my life, I'm 47 years old. I feel like I'm more able, huh, I guess, to be reflective about this. But for many years, I really was not able to talk about this at all. You know, I grew up in the underclass, which in teaching at Heritage, and living with Native people, I realized is also not a very unique story. When I was in high school, our family shared an apartment with another family. It was a two-bedroom apartment. There were two families in it. You know, I grew up in Albuquerque. There were five teenagers living there at one time hmm. um, in a two-bedroom apartment. I slept on the floor in the living room, basically had no privacy, usually had just one change of clothes. I would say I experience shame on a daily basis based on just not having the kind of stuff that teenagers have and being sort of teased at school was very shy, just kind of given a hard time for not fitting in. And so I was really silent about that. You know, I remember living in fear that teachers would call home. You know, I, I worked full-time in high school, you know, I had a full-time job. So I missed a lot of class and just being afraid that um, I was going to get called out for that and that the authorities would kind of figure out that I wasn't living in the most ideal situation. So I, I think there was quite a lot of furtiveness and just trying to not draw attention to myself. And I remember, you know, I was in choir. I loved to sing and I love just the feeling of togetherness that I would experience being in choir. And, you know, I, you know, I was a decent singer and I remember I got into jazz choir and there were concerts, right? There were concerts and shows and I didn't have a way to, to get to the shows often. You know, our family didn't have a car. It was a lot of chaos and violence at home and, and then I just remember being punished. My peers, you know, just really feeling like I had let the team down and I was irresponsible. So I just quit choir. I had no way to explain to my teacher why I wasn't able to, to get there. And so just this increasing sense of alienation and also just feeling ashamed. And I think when I went to college, I got a scholarship in my state at that time, the state of New Mexico, if you were first generation college bound, the state would pay for the tuition. And so I got that state scholarship and I started attending the University of New Mexico. And 
my plan was to just distance myself from my past as much as possible and to work hard to assimilate. I felt like, hey, you know, I grew up in this difficult situation, separated from my mother. I lived with my dad and this group, you know, this other group of people, this other family and and my own siblings. And all of that was as a result of my parents being just dysfunctional people. That's all. You know what I mean? Like I never had any sense that there was anything more than that. And I just wanted my life to be different. So I thought, you know, I'm going to do something. I'm going to go to college. My parents hadn't gone to school and I'm going to have a different life. And I think in college, I was dealing with depression and alienation. I felt really worthless. You know, there were moments when I wanted to die. I just felt, I just felt, um, had a really difficult time in college um, trying to make a place for myself. You know, I didn't have a lot of money. I felt like there was something that was wrong with me. You know, there was something inherently about me that was worthless. So how did you, how did you heal and move forward in your life? I went to, to counseling, you know, mental health therapy really helped me to kind of build a sense of myself. And I worked really hard. You know, I spent a lot of time working long hours. Of course, I worked full-time in college to support myself, but then I also was taking classes. I got a double degree, graduated magna cum laude. I just invested a lot of time into achievement. I thought, you know, this is my ticket. I can define myself, I guess is what I was thinking. And I could just separate from the rest of that history, distance myself from my family Right. It was really when my husband, Dan, and I moved to living among the Yakima on the reservation here where our home is, that I started to see, oh my gosh, this is not a personal, <laughs> this is not just me, right? There are a lot of people who are experiencing this, you know, yeah. this is not an isolated story. In fact, the more people that I started to know and talk to in that context, I started to see, oh my gosh, this is not just a personal experience. This is a collective experience. Why? What happened? What happened? What's going on here? As I started to learn about the doctrine of discovery, I realized this shame, this collective understanding or experience of shame is really as a result of trauma that was intentionally inflicted by my own country. My country <laughs> created this situation knowingly and intentionally. So this wasn't just, I had two parents who were dysfunctional and made bad choices. It was like my country actually intentionally did this to me and all these other people that I am, you know, in relationship with here. Yeah. And I think this would be a good time to, to talk about how did that happen? So far, I'm not really talking about the experience of racial discrimination or, you know, being teased for being Native, because that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about there was a process that was intentional to get Native people in the situation of being in the underclass, because that's not where we started. If you just think about the playing field in the United States, Native people originally had access to land and collective decision-making and wealth, and that has been systematically removed intentionally. So do you want to talk about that systematic removal of wealth and language and land? And I know you've talked to me and I've learned from you about the legacy of trauma through these different policy eras. 
Yeah. Bob Miller is this legal scholar who wrote a really powerful book called Native America Discovered and Conquered. And he laid out a series of policy eras. His description of that has really rung true to me and I've used it. And so I'm going to start with the removal era. So this is 1830 to 1850, approximately. What happened is the U.S. government they established in policy what they called the final solution. And they really called it that, the final solution to the Indian problem. Hmm. Indian problem. Their goal was to force indigenous nations to relocate west of the Mississippi. So at this time in, in the process of colonization in the United States, the East Coast was being settled. There was a policy impetus to get Native Americans out of that region. So this solution uh, was the removal era, so get all the Native people west of the Mississippi. And it wasn't really a final solution because the gold rush in California, the expansion of the Oregon Trail, um, the resolution of the Mexican-American War meant that a flood of settlers were going to rush into the Western Territory. So it wasn't actually going to be final. But that first policy era was the removal era, just getting folks out of the east part of the country. And so those folks, of course, lost all of their land. You know, they became refugees on other Native lands. This would have been the infamous Trail of Tears, was I think probably that one of the removal stories that a lot of people right, know about. Exactly. Then next is the reservation era. And this era is really 1850, approximately to the end of the century. And the goal here is to force indigenous nations onto small, remote reservations. They're established by treaties, but those treaties are negotiated under a threat of violence by the U.S. military. So the goal here is to corral native peoples onto small plots of land. Mm -hmm. The reservations are much smaller than the indigenous tribes' traditional food gathering areas. They're often outside their traditional homeland. So Oklahoma was one territory that had a lot of different indigenous nations on it. It wasn't necessarily, you know, their original homeland, but it's where they were settled by the federal government. And also these reservations often didn't have adequate food, medicine, housing, clean water. And so when I say medicine, I mean, Native people historically have collected food and fiber for their homes and also for medicine and so on. So these places where they're being settled, they're not from that place. They don't have access to adequate food or the materials for housing or clean water or other necessities. By treaty, then the United States government is going to provide subsidy, that is to say, grain, oil, uh, for food and so on. Because they knew they were putting them on lands that weren't going to be able to support them. That's right. And, and there often wasn't enough land for the population, especially for populations that were growing. And so those conditions continue to be true today in the United States. <laughs> of course, um, all these years later, that's 1850. So, you know, that's almost 200 years ago, the populations have grown and there there's just not enough land base for the population so I think that, you know, this removal era, you know, removing indigenous folks from land and then reservation era, forcing them onto reservations is something a lot of non-indigenous folks are familiar with from just basic history. But I know the policy era that comes next, 
uh, which I believe is the allotment and assimilation era, is one I had never heard of until I was up visiting you on the Yakima Nation Reservation, and you showed me this map. And I just assumed that the Yakima Nation or individuals in the Yakima Nation would own all of the land on their reservation. And that just was really not true. You showed me this map, and I saw this checkerboard of land parcels. And I think maybe, I don't know, half of them or less were owned by Yakima people, just a very small percentage compared to what I thought would be true. And these parcels were often not contiguous. They didn't like abut against each other. So it just became very clear to me from looking at that map that Yakima Nation did not quote unquote own their reservation land. So can you say more about this era and what caused that to happen? So this is really the late 1880s to about 1935 or somewhere in that era, there's just a need and a pressure for land. The allotment and assimilation era, it further diminished indigenous lands by reducing the size of reservations that had been established by treaty. So the logic here, we want to break up tribal ownership of land. We want the land that is good and worthwhile to be open and available to settlers. And so what happened is the reservation land was broken up into allotments. So it said, okay, however many people there are in this reservation or however many families, we're going to give each of them an allotment to a piece of land that's going to be theirs. We are going to establish private property on reservations. And often prior to this time period, uh, the land had been held in common by Native communities. And so now we're going to divide it up into allotments. Each family will get a certain allotment of land. And then the rest of that land was considered surplus. Hmm. That surplus land became federal land. It could be sold. It was settled by other people and actually intentionally settled in this checkerboard pattern that you're talking about to make sure that Native people would not be able to collectively manage their land base and resources. And the person who came up with this legislation, his name was Henry Lauren Dawes. And he has this really fun um, quote (laughs) where he's talking about how this is going to happen. So he says, The head chief, and he's talking about one of the five what were called civilized tribes, told us that there was not a family in the whole nation that had not a home of his own. There was not a pauper in the nation, and the nation did not owe a dollar. He sees this as a negative thing, and he goes on to say, uh, it built its own capital, and it built its schools and hospitals, yet the defect of the system was apparent. They have got as far as they can go because they own their land in common. It is Henry George's system, and under that, there is no enterprise to make your home any better than that of your neighbors. There is no selfishness, which is what is at the bottom of civilization. Till this, people will consent to give up their lands and divide among their citizens so that each can own the land he cultivates, they will make no more progress. So this is the introduction of, well... He describes it as selfishness, but it's really competition to try and get people to compete against each other in the free market economy. This is his rationale for why this is important. We need the Native people to become civilized. They're not going to be civilized unless they have private property. Of course, private property is is a, a core value in the United States. It's enshrined in the Constitution. And so we need Native people to care about that private property as well. But there is this added benefit, which is that all the surplus land can now be sold off. So this is just the further diminishment of Native American lands. And, you know, allotments were pretty impractical 
because they were based in a cultural understanding of cultivation that is not necessarily held uh, the same way by indigenous people. So if you just take the example of the Yakima Lifeway, there was historically or traditionally movement between different parts of land that was seasonal. So for example, you're going to spend a certain portion of your time in the mountains uh, where you can pick berries and other roots. You're going to spend a portion of your time at the river. The Yakima Nation is a salmon people, so they depend on the salmon as their primary source of protein. And so they use salmon in a variety of different ways. They are going to be gathering around uh, in the foothills they have different camps in these different geographical locations, but it's very light cultivation and it's, and it's on a cycle, right? So what does it mean to have 40 acres of dry land year round from that cosmology or that worldview? How do you even live and survive on it? So allotment basically takes away the whole culture of sustenance of how you actually feed yourself. Yeah. And so because it was sort of baffling, like, what am I, what do I do with this land? There was an opportunity for a lot of land to be lost as a result of just, just theft, really. I mean, I have a friend who's, whose family allotment was signed away. I mean, her ancestor put an X on a ledger in a general store, and sold her family allotment to pay for groceries. Mm, wow. What good is the land if, you know, if you're starving to death? Right. You know, when I first realized the allotment strategy when I was up there, you know, with you, I found it so disconcerting. And, you know, just that quote that you read from Dawes, and these are supposedly Christian people saying that there's no selfishness, which is the bottom of civilization. So people will consent to give up their lands and divide among their citizens so that each can own the land he cultivates. They will make no more progress. And I was thinking of that verse from Psalm 24 about the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, like such a contrast to this worldview that's still the worldview of the dominant culture. But then there's another part of this policy era is forced assimilation. And it just gets worse in terms of how Christianity was weaponized against Native people. So could you say a bit more about the assimilation aspect of this policy era? Yeah, there is also a piece of legislation that's passed during this time, the Civilization Fund Act of 1819. And this is where the federal government has tasked Christian denominations with operating the primary institutions on reservations, which would include missions, schools, and even the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So the church is actually tasked with becoming the administrators over native lands. This is the era in which boarding schools were created. Many people have heard of boarding schools. They were created to Christianize and assimilate indigenous children. And these children were forcefully removed from their parents' care and institutionalized in schools where they face disease, malnutrition, neglect, assault, and so on. And the goal was to separate these children from their own language, their culture, and their spirituality. So assimilation from this point of view is really about making sure that children lose any sense of identity other than is being taught to them by, um, by the Christian church. 
Yeah, and you said that uh, most people don't know that boarding schools actually persisted in the United States through the 1980s and 1990s. Right, that's right. And I think after a couple of generations where the federal government removed children forcefully and intentionally, it just became part of a cultural expectation that Native parents would send their kids to boarding schools. And so that tradition carried on until, you know, the 70s and 80s. I think we're going to talk more about this later, but some folks listening to this podcast may know something about the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in Canada. Can you just say a little bit more about that? Yes. For right now, and I think we'll say more later. Yeah, you bet. So the great thing about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada is that they have documents. Of course, there were there were also boarding schools in Canada, residential schools, they're called in that culture. But the great thing about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is that they have data to demonstrate what happened at those schools. In the United States, historians have not gone back and collected that data. In the United States, our national government uh, had reports on what was going on in boarding schools um, until the reports were so dire that they quit collecting information because it was it was too depressing news to share with Congress. So <laughs> they just quit. Uh, wow. But let me tell you about what happened in Canada. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission estimated that 3,200 Native children died in residential schools over a span of 120 years. At the time of the commission's final report, which was in 2015, there were 70,000 former residential school students that were still alive. And of those, of 70,000, 31,907 had verified cases of sexual abuse or assault in boarding schools. Nearly half. Wow. That is devastating. We don't have those records here in the U.S., but boarding school survivors, they recount stories of hunger, abuse, and neglect, and death. There are parents who had children in boarding school who were not even notified when their children died. There are unmarked graves on these boarding school sites where they would just bury the bodies of children who died there. You know, I know there's a call in this country for us to also have a truth and reconciliation kind of process that Canada has had, and um, that's long overdue. And um, and I want—I think we're going to return and talk a little bit more about the legacy of boarding schools. I know there's one last policy era that you've mentioned to me, and this is also one I had never heard about before. The termination era is the era that's from the mid-1940s to essentially 1961. During this era, the official United States policy was to terminate the legacy of tribal governments permanently. So the idea is to end Indian identity. At this point um, in the 1920s, Indigenous people had been made American citizens in mass. So there's the logic at this point, hey, you know, what does it even mean to be Native? Why should we have to continue on with these treaties? Let's just cancel the whole thing. And that's what happened. The idea is the treaties are anachronistic. So the federal government at this time just says we no longer recognize any Native American tribal government or any treaty. Wow. They just basically erased the existence legally of tribal governments 
although this idea of termination was reversed, ultimately in the 1960s, the federal government then said, we are going to set criteria that determines where the tribal government will have to prove that they are actually a tribe. You know, hundreds of peoples were terminated and still don't have federal status. So imagine what that's like. You know, you're, you're a native tribe, you have your own government, that's canceled. You know, 25 years later, you have the opportunity to be acknowledged again. But if you can't hit the bar, if you can't hit the criteria, then you no longer exist. Yeah, that's true of um, there are no federally recognized tribes in California between, uh, I believe it was Santa Barbara and Sonoma, which is a very huge stretch. And the Chichenyo Ohlone people who live here in the San Francisco Bay Area, we've had two um, Ohlone men come speak to us a few times. And when we ask them how we could be in solidarity with them, they say, basically, help us lobby Dianne Feinstein to get federal recognition. There's so much that they can't do without that federal recognition. I think you've also said that during this termination era, urbanization of indigenous people who lived on reservations also became a priority. So there was also this deliberate uh, effort to shift indigenous people off reservations. Yeah. And in fact, the big effort across all of these policy areas is to remove indigenous people from their land, to separate them from their land. At this point, the federal government wants to reduce Indian subsidies that had been agreed to by treaty. They want to shrink the population and reservations. And so we have the Indian Relocation Act. This act creates programs uh, to remove indigenous individuals and families from reservations to cities. They want to get them in urban areas. Indigenous peoples were promised paid relocation, vocational training, medical insurance, uh, assistance in purchasing homes, funds to purchase relevant equipment and to enter a trade. And there's an estimate that about 750,000 indigenous people migrated to cities during this era. Wow. Many people who entered the program did not receive any services. They found themselves jobless, homeless, and hundreds of miles away from their support systems and homes. In cities like Seattle, um, which is the city that is closest to where I live here in, in central Washington, the big city, there are many homeless native people to this day also in Spokane and Portland as a result of this program. Wow, Sarah, during the course of this conversation, I feel myself feeling heavier and heavier to just the, just the layers and layers of policy that have, as you said, uh, basically been all contrived to just force indigenous people off their land. And uh, just how many different ways the dominant culture found to do that and to also deprive indigenous folks of their culture, you know, their heritage. It's, uh, it's sort of devastating just to lay it all out like this. So thank you for doing it. I think it's so essential that folks from the dominant culture understand this. Right, you bet. And I think in our next hour, sort of tie it back to where does this sense of shame come from? And even prior to that sense of shame, how do I, as a person in the United States, land in a position where I am living in a city hundreds of miles away from the land of my people in poverty? You know, how does that happen? And I think, right. um, I think you know, connecting those dots is important because 
you know, when I talk about the doctrine of discovery, I, I talk about it in terms of the doctrine of discovery and me, because I am a product of that doctrine. You know, my whole life experience is a product of it. It's not historical in that the impact is ongoing. And I think it's so important to emphasize it remains the law. Right. The Supreme Court decision in 2005, the most recent decision that has cited the doctrine of discovery as the law was written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, yeah. the majority decision. And so I, I often say that, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was a, a champion for uh, civil rights, the Voting Rights Act, women's rights, penned the most recent uh, Supreme Court decision that solidifies the doctrine of discovery as the basis for the ongoing policies to remove indigenous people from their lands. Wow. Well, thank you for this education. And I think next time we talk, we're going to return to this topic of your discovery of the doctrine of discovery and its impact on your life and on the lives of all Indigenous people. I'm very aware, as I talked about the education, that it's so important for folks from the dominant culture to know this history. I also think I hear you saying it's really important for Indigenous people to know this history and make this Mm -hmm. connection between the doctrine of discovery and this systematic appropriation of land and culture and et cetera, for them to know that because they are living it and they're living it in their bodies and their psyches. And Mm -hmm. I think, as you've said, it's not personal, it's planned. Yeah, and thank you, Sherry. Um, I appreciate this conversation and uh, and the time that we have together to explore this. And I agree very much with what you're saying. I think what has been such a shock for me in learning about the doctrine and not having learned anything about it in school, this is the legacy and it is a legacy that was intentional and remains intentionally poised to create the situation that we're living in today. All right. Well, thank you, Sarah. We'll talk again soon. Okay. Thanks, Sherry. This podcast is hosted by us, co-produced by the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery Coalition and Anabaptist World. The opinions expressed here are ours, however, and do not reflect official positions of Anabaptist World. For more information, go to anabaptistworld.org and d of d menno.org audio editing was done by shannon kaler and theme music by micah peplo and shannon thank you thank you